It was called God's Hall of Fame. And it was about, I put together an all-star baseball team of the greatest Christian baseball players uh, in American history. And I wrote the book in 1975. So, uh, and Johnny and Ruby had been members of the church only for about 40 years by that time. <laughs> something, something along that line. But uh, yeah, I was, a young, I was young and uh, I wanted, I had just finished playing baseball, was in the ministry, and I wanted to reach ball players for Christ. So what I did is I wrote this book, and I think Ty Cobb was in there, and I told Calvi's conversion story. And I had Billy Sunday there, and he was playing outfield and different ball players who were Christians. Uh, so I I had like three thousand of these books printed up, and I sent one copy to every coach, amateur coach and college coach in the Baltimore, Washington D.C. area, and I said, "Here's a, a gift for you. I want you to look at this. It's, uh, and if you think this is something that your your players." would like, I'll provide enough for your entire team. And I said, now there's a little spiritual message here, and I think this is be really good for your players. So I ended up getting rid of those 3,000 copies of that as an evangelistic tool, you know. So, And I had the gospel in there, the last, uh, last section was all about the gospel. And so I had the second year, now I'd run out of books. I'd given all these away. I had the coach at American University in Washington, D.C. write me back and a couple other coaches saying, hey, can you provide books for my team this year? And I said, well, I don't have any. <laughs> and uh, it was going to cost a lot of money to get them printed at that time, and I didn't have any wealthy supporters. So I couldn't do that. So, But we had probably many people. So I wrote another book. It was called The Occult. I wrote that in 1977. This is just a very interesting little story. And again, I was talking about the, the occult and how it's dangerous. And, but I had a gospel message in there. I had one chapter on Jean Dixon. Remember her? So uh, I had a lot of these books printed up. So it just happens that Jean Dixon is speaking for like uh, a regional Kiwanis club or something. And they're going to sell tickets that are raising a lot of money. And she's going to be the main speaker. So uh, I decided that I was going, and they, they were meeting in a high school auditorium. It's going to be about 2,000 people there. So I have all these books, boxes of these books on the occult. And I go out there about an hour before the meeting starts. And I get Lynn and her brother. And Lynn had a family of six as well. And they stood on the sidewalk passing out these books. Say, so here's a free book and something you might want to read. It's about Jean Dixon, and you might want to read it, you know, before she gets up to speak. So, it ends up that these big thugs come out and say, you have to get out of here. And I said, well, this is public property. I'm standing on the sidewalk, and I pay taxes, you know, for the school and for the sidewalk. So, no, I'm not going to get out of here. If you want me out of here, you better call the police. So, the guy lunged for my books. What well, cost me a lot of money to print those books? And I held all those. So somebody came out, some official came out. I said, I want to see somebody. I forget who it was. And they came out and said, hey, they have a constitutional right to do this. So we passed out about 5,000 of those books. About 1,000. So a week later, I get a letter from somebody saying they came to Christ. 
by reading that book. Isn't that amazing? So all you have to do is, you, know, you don't have to go out and be a witness one-on-one, -on -one, and for some people they can't do that, but you can pass out literature, and that was just a great thing. Uh, those books that I wrote in those days were books that were about 40 and 50 pages long. <laughs> they weren't long books. They weren't 300 pages. But anyway, that was a lot of fun doing evangelism back in those days. Okay, so let's take our Bibles and we're in the Gospel of John. So if you're new with us, we are, we've passed the 50% mark of the Gospel. We're over halfway through the Gospel of John. And we're now finishing up chapter 11. So turn to John, the Gospel of John in chapter 11. And we're going to begin at verse 45. So, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, there are two reactions to this great miracle. One is a positive reaction, and one is a negative reaction. The positive reaction, we're going to just label that conversion. Okay? So look at verse 45. It says this. And then many of the Jews uh, who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did, believed in him. That's the positive reaction, conversion. But then there's a negative action, and we're going to call this an aversion. And you see that in verse 46. And you think they would have been excited about Lazarus being raised, but look what it says, verse 46. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Now, notice it's the Jews. You see that in verse 45? Many of the Jews. In verse 46, and some of them, the Jews. These are the uh, these are people that were not, you know, in Jesus' favor prior to this miracle. And these are the professional mourners who have come along with Mary to see what's going on. So we talked about what professional mourners were last week. So some were converted and some uh, ran to the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees uh, were the self-proclaimed protectors of the Jewish religion. They considered themselves pious. They considered themselves uh, those who were going to make sure that the Jewish religion didn't get diluted or distorted. Okay. And what happens is once the Pharisees hear about what Jesus has done, uh, they call a special assembly or a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the uh, ruling council that's located in Jerusalem. So here we see this emergency session of the Sanhedrin in verse 47. It says, Then the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered a council. That is the Sanhedrin. They only have one item on the agenda. Look what it is, verse 47. And they said, What shall we do? <laughs> in other words, we got some we got trouble on our hands. How are we going to handle this guy, Jesus, this Jesus controversy? He's becoming popular. People are following him. They're not listening to us like they used to listen to us. You know, how are we going to handle this situation? You can sense just in that one sentence, verse 47, what shall we do? Can't you feel the frustration there? It's like, what are we going to do? You know, what are we going to do? They're in a quandary, you see. Uh, and it says they said, what are we going to do? And the verb there is an imperfect verb, but it means they just kept 
dealing with this issue. This is a prolonged discussion. This is not a discussion that lasted five minutes. This is a discussion that lasted five hours. So they are in a quandary. They don't know what to do. I wish that I could read the minutes of this meeting. Now that would be fun. If you want to write a novel, write a novel on verse 47. What shall we do? And write the minutes of that meeting. <laughs> Use your historical imagination. Tell me what's going on in this meeting. I know they are in a quandary. They don't know what to do. And look at the reason for the quandary at the end of verse 47. Because, or for this man, works many signs. He does miracles. He does these amazing things. That's why they don't know what to do. What do you do with somebody who can perform miracles and raise people from the dead? Uh... Notice they acknowledge that he performs the miracles. They don't deny the miracles. But they know that this is a hindrance. And the hindrance is because people are starting to follow him because of the miracles. They see these miracles as signs. That's the word used. The sign that he's the Messiah. And they're afraid that the masses of people are going to follow Jesus and he's not going to be stopped. How can they stop him? And so they have to come up with options. Okay? And in the end, after these five hours of meetings, they have one consensus. They come up with one sort of consensus. It's a negative solution. A negative consensus. And look what that is in verse 48. Look at the negative solution. If we let him alone like this, if we allow things to continue as they are, everyone will believe in him. He'll have everybody following him, and we're going to be in real trouble. And so they, they're saying basically, we can agree on one thing, we just can't let this thing go on like this. That's a negative solution. This is what we can't do. We can't allow this to go on as it is. And look what will happen. If we just allow this thing to get out of hand, in verse 48, the Romans will come. They'll take away our place and our nation. Now, our place means the temple. And our nation, of course, is Israel. They will dissolve our nation. A Jewish nation will cease to exist. They will uh, confiscate our property. And they will scatter our people if we allow this to go on. Now, why do they feel this way? Because the Jews believed that the Messiah, when he arrived, was going to overthrow the Romans, the Roman Empire, was going to set up the kingdom of God. Well, if that's what happens, if they see Jesus as this guy who's going to overthrow the Roman government, they know that Rome's not going to stand for this. Rome's just going to come in, destroy the temple, scatter the people, and that's going to be the end. So we can't allow this to go on any longer. So finally we have this, what I'm going to call the final solution. And look at verse 49. Once they reject letting him go on, and things getting out of hand, Verse 49 says, one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, meaning the year that all this happened, said to them, said to the Sanhedrin, I like this, what are you, stupid? Isn't that how it reads? What are you, stupid? You don't know what you're talking about. Look at that. You know nothing at all. Now, who is this character, Caiaphas? says he's the high priest. Now the high priest held the highest office in the land. He was the head of the temple. 
but he wasn't just a religious leader, he was a political force. He was appointed by the Roman government. He was a surrogate for the Roman government. Even though he was called high priest, he was basically working for Rome. And he was a political survival survivor. Most high priests didn't last more than two or three years. They couldn't handle the job. They couldn't, they couldn't perform the way Rome wanted them to perform. This man right here is a political survivor. He reigns as high priest from 18 to 36 A.D. An 18-year reign as high priest. He was high priest longer than any other high priest in the entire first century. So he knows how to survive. He knows he's not going to let this thing get out of hand. <laughs> if he lets this thing get out of hand, guess what Rome's going to do to him? See, one of the jobs of the high priest was to make sure there was no revolt in the street. He had to sort of keep the people, the masses, down from revolting against Rome. The Jewish people didn't want to be under Roman oppression. They wanted to be set free. And here the guy comes along and he says, I'm the Messiah. And they say, oh, let's follow him and overthrow Rome. This guy's not going to allow that to happen. He says, what are you guys talking about? You're stupid. This, don't, you don't know what you're talking about. So everybody stops. And they listen to the high priest. And he knows clearly what it needs to be done. So he thinks they're approaching the problem the wrong way, and he's going to give them the solution. So here's what he said. You don't know anything at all, verse 50, nor do you consider this, that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. In other words, rather than the nation being destroyed for one man because of this one character, Jesus, how about this solution? Let the one man be destroyed and saved. That's yeah, very clear thinking. Now, what did he say Rome? What did they say Rome would do if they left Jesus continue the way he was going? They would destroy our place, that's the temple, and they would destroy our nation. That's Israel. Now, Luke is writing somewhere around 80 AD. What's happened to the temple in 70 AD? It's been destroyed. Uh, what's happened to Israel and its people? It's been dissolved and they've been scattered. Over one million people were killed in the Jewish war from 66 AD to 70 AD. And Luke's, or John's audience, John's writing probably 95, I should say, John's audience knows that the temple, when they're reading this, they're reading it in what year? 95. When was the temple destroyed? 70. It's been destroyed for 25 years. And guess what? Jesus had nothing to do with it. It wasn't destroyed because of Jesus, was it? Why was it destroyed? Why was Israel destroyed in 70 AD? Huh? Yeah, Rome came in because the Jews revolted against them. They revolted against Rome not because of Jesus. Jesus didn't do anything. So, John's audience knows that uh, Rome, Rome has come in and destroyed the temple already, and that uh, Israel has been dissolved, and uh, Jesus didn't have anything to do with it. It's just, uh, but that's the argument. So let's, let's get rid of this guy. This is his political solution. Rather than the nation perishing for one man, because of one man, let one man perish in order to save the nation. Pretty simple solution, and it's a complete solution. And we see another example of this in the Bible where Jonah 
God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. So he catches a boat. He gets on the USS Tarshish. He says, one-way ticket to Tarshish, please. Well, Tarshish is over here. And God wants him to go to Nineveh. It's over here. He's running in the opposite direction. Remember what happens when Jonah gets on that boat? What happens to that boat? Great big storm comes. And the settlers say, what in the world's going on around here? We're going to perish. And uh, someone says, there must be somebody on board that's making God angry. <clears throat> and uh, they find Jonah snoring down there in the hull of the ship. They wake him up and say, Are you making God angry? He said, oh. He said, yeah, it's me. So they said, we're gonna, this boat's going to be destroyed. We're all going to die because of one man, you. And so he said, well, I'll give you the solution. Let me die and save the boat. Now that's the same solution. <laughs> Why should a whole nation be destroyed because of one man? Let the one man be destroyed and save the whole nation. So this is sort of a Jonah-type story. And notice what he says in verse 50. He says that, uh, nor do you consider that it's expedient. Do you see that word? Expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation, that the whole nation should perish. So expedient means it's profitable. It's our best interest that this be done. So now what we have in verse uh, 51, we have John's commentary. In other words, the gospel writer John now sort of throws in an aside. And he says, uh, now, John says, this he, that's Caiaphas, this he did not say on his own authority. But being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Uh, now, what in the world is he talking about here? Being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. The Jews believed that the high priest, when he spoke officially, spoke on behalf of God, that he prophesied. That was what they believed. Now, we don't know that that, that was the case, but that's what they believed. Very similar to the Pope. When the Pope speaks ex cathedra, he speaks on behalf of God. And they believed that when the high priest spoke officially, he spoke on behalf of God. Was God speaking through him? It was a prophecy. So uh, John throws that out, and the people thought, well, maybe this must be a prophecy from God. Now, the Pope, when he speaks, by the way, this is just some information for you. We always say, well, the Pope's, when he speaks, he speaks infallibly. Don't we say that? You've heard of that when the Pope speaks. He speaks. You know when the last time that he spoke infallibly? Ex cathedra? 1950. So the Pope doesn't usually, when they say, well, the Pope's infallible, that's really not, that's a real stretch. The last time he was infallible was 1950. And that's when he proclaimed that Mary ascended into heaven. It's called the Assumption of Mary. And it became an official dogma of the Catholic Church. And to be a good Catholic, you have to believe that Mary ascended into heaven. Uh, but the Jews said, hey, anytime the high priest he speaks prophetically. So when he said this, they accepted it as prophecy. And uh, John then continues with his commentary. Look what else he says. He said, and, uh, well, let's me read 51 again, and then I'll read 52. We'll read it in, in continuity. 
Now this he did not say on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And, and the writer John says, and it, it appears that this was a prophecy. He spoke more than he actually realized what he was saying. And not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together, God would gather together, in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. So, what the Gospel writer John says is when the priest said this, he thought he was just coming up with a solution. Hey, one guy dying for the nation, that's a good solution. But in reality, God was using him. And he was speaking more than he realized. He thought, we'll get rid of this guy and the nation will be spared. God used it to mean when Jesus died, he died for the sins of the nation. And not only the sins of the nation, but in verse 52, not for that Jewish nation only, but also that he would gather together, look at this, in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. He doesn't only die for the Jews, he dies for people who are beyond the nation of Israel. And if you remember from chapter 10, a week or two ago, look over chapter 10, verse 16, we see the same concept coming straight from the lips of Jesus. Let's see if this doesn't make sense. So when you look at John 10, 16, look what it says. Jesus said, And other sheep I have, you see that? Other sheep I have that are not of this fold, that are not Jewish. This is 10, 16. Them I must, look, see that obligation there? See that necessity? Them I must bring, that they may hear my voice, and that there will be what? One flock and one shepherd. Now look back at 11.52. And here's what the high priest said and what John the commentator says. He says this, and not for that nation only, but for these other sheep that are scattered. He's going to bring them together, children of God who are scattered abroad. And they're all going to be one. They're going to be called the children of God. And that's what Jesus does. When he dies, he doesn't die only for the Jews. Who does he die for? everyone. For God so loved the world, he did what? Gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So now we come to the bottom line of this uh, advice. And look at verse 53. It says, Then, from that day on, from the day of that emergency meeting, they plotted to put him to death. Uh, there's an organized attempt to execute Jesus. Now, others tried to assassinate him before, but these were always spontaneous attempts to grab him and throw him over a cliff or, you know, kill him. Uh, these were born out of anger and uh, were local, but in this case, this is an official decree from the Sanhedrin that he must be executed, and they tried to determine how they are going to get a hold of him and execute him. Jesus must die, verse 53. Now look at the result of verse 54. Therefore Jesus no longer, after that decree was made, therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. Do you see that? But look what he did. He went from there, he got out of that area, into the country near the wilderness, to a city called Ephraim, which was 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem, a day's journey away by foot. And there he remained with his disciples. 
So he stays away from there because there is an official decree that he must be arrested and put to death. And so in order for him to survive, he has to stay away from Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice this timeline because it's very interesting. If you look at verse 55, it says this. So we want to know when all this is happening. John tells us when all these events are happening on the calendar. And the Passover of the Jews was near. That means it's spring. And many of the Jewish pilgrims went from the country. Now where was Jesus in verse 54? He went out into the country. But guess what? It's Passover and many people who are out in the country, guess what they're doing? They're coming into Jerusalem. From the country, came up to Jerusalem. When did they come up to the Jerusalem? Before the Passover, verse 55. For what purpose? To purify themselves. Now, according to Jewish law and tradition, Jews could not just walk into the temple unless they were purified. And on feast days, such as Passover, where you're going to have to offer a sacrifice, you had to be purified in advance. Now, there could have been as many as 200,000 people show up for Passover. Josephus says there was a million at the time sometimes showed up for Passover. At Jerusalem. So you know what Jerusalem was like. I mean, a million people there? That's a lot of people. And so they would, in order to purify themselves and make their sacrifices and buy their lambs and all the things that they had to do, they would arrive you know, a week early so that they could make sure they went through all the ceremonies. And so that's what they're doing. That's what it is on the calendar. Now, if you get somewhere for a week early, you got a lot of time on your hands. Right? So uh, what do you do? It's sort of like a mini vacation. You have a lot of time on your hands. So what do you think they did? Well, look what they did in verse 56. It says, then they saw Jesus. Who? The people, the pilgrims who came there. They saw Jesus. They said, is Jesus here? Because he was popular. Everybody wanted to see him. They saw Jesus. And they spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? That's a negative. It reads sort of like this. You, think he's, you don't think he's going to come to the feast, do you? You don't think Jesus will show up in Jerusalem, do you? Why would they say that? Why don't they think Jesus is going to show up in Jerusalem? Because yeah, he's hunted. He's wanted. He's the death sentence has been placed upon him. And so uh, they're starting to ask. And you think they're hunting. Anybody see Jesus? No, you don't think he's going to show up, do you? He's wanted. Sanhedrin put out a, an order, you know. And I can imagine that this became the basis for, uh, you know, office pools. You ever been in an office pool? Who's going to win the game? This was, will Jesus show up? You know, in gambling terms, the odds were 10 to 1 that he wouldn't show up. Wouldn't take that bet? That'll be a bet, is it? Uh, because the Sanhedrin basically put out the hit. And uh, in a sense, it's like in verse 47, it says, Now both the pre chief priest and the Pharisees had given the command that anyone knew where he was, now watch this. So here's the issue. Everybody's hunting for him, taking bets. Will he show up? Will he not show up? You know, uh, the odds are that he won't show up. Now, both the chief priest and the Pharisees—that's your Sanhedrin—had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. 
So what they've done is they put out an all points bulletin on Jesus. You know, when the cops put out an all points bulletin on you, every cop car has your picture on its little computer, and they're always looking for you at the license plates. You know, they, they know where you live. They're hunting for you. They put out an all points bulletin. They say, if you know where he is, you need to uh, let us know that we may seize him. That's the last words of verse 57. We would put, put it in, the, in modern terms, we'd put it like this. Uh, you know the television ads, and you see them on sometimes milk cartons. It's a crime hotline. $1,000 for anyone giving information leading to the arrest and conviction of, and they put that number, and you usually see that when there's a robbery or you know something like that. You see that, that puts across there. And they give you a phone number. If you can show them where that guilty party is, they arrest them and convict them, you get a thousand dollars. And that's what they've done here. They've, if in modern terms, they would have plastered his picture. You know, in every post office, you know, in Dallas, his picture would have been there. So that when you go in, you constantly see them, you're going to go buy some stamps here, you can see this guy's picture. They want his face to be familiar. Or if we were living in cowboy days, There'd be these wanted posters on every tree, you know. Where every, you know, lane comes together and there's this tree and there's a picture that says, wanted, dead or alive, $1,000. And so you'd have bounty hunters, wouldn't you? Isn't that what bounty hunters do? They find out who's wanted, what the reward is, and what do they do? Go find the person, make a citizen's arrest, take them to the police, arrest them officially, collect the bounty. So, it makes sense to me that once that crime hotline has been established and the wanted dead or alive posters are put up, and this speaking metaphorically, that there would be somebody who comes and collects. And that person is Judas Iscariot. And the hotline wasn't for $1,000, it was for 30 pieces of silver. But there is a reward, and it's a reward that's collected. So the question is, will he show up? And the odds are 10 to 1 that he won't. Because <laughs> he knows it's dangerous if he show up. Okay? Now look at chapter 12 and verse 1. Then six days before the Passover. The other one was a week. Now watch, six days before the Passover. Jesus came to... Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, and whom he raised from the dead. Six days before the Passover, Jesus gets, he moves from 15 miles away from, to, from Jerusalem to within two miles of Jerusalem. <laughs> now he's real close. No one knows he's there. He's, he's staying in Mary and Martha's home. But that's where he is. He's within two miles, one week before the Passover starts. And, uh, Next week, we're going to deal with this, what happened six days before the Passover. Now, then look at verse 12. It says this. Then the next day, the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was what? Coming to Jerusalem, took branches, and here you have Palm Sunday. Now, next week, we're going to deal with Mary's anointing of Jesus, which is chapter 12 in those first few verses 
And then, this is, this is how you know God's been good to you. Okay. This is how you know you're, you, you're, you're living good. Then the next week, as providence would have it, when we started this book, who would have ever thought it? that on Palm Sunday, where would we land? <laughs> on the Palm Sunday passage. And that's what we'll deal with in two weeks. So, uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can look at this, we can get a sense of what's going on in the minds of the officials. We can see how difficult this Jesus movement was for them. How they had to navigate through this Roman world and this Jewish world and sort of keep the peace at one end and follow the rules at the other end. And the only solution seemed to be the death of Jesus. Calculated decision without emotion, a necessity. A necessity to survive and a necessity to, to save the nation. And so, Lord, we, we know these kinds of political decisions are being made every day in our society as well. Politicians doing what's expedient, what saves their skin, what works for their constituents. And oftentimes, Lord, we are... <coughs> tempted and drawn to do those kinds of things as well, instead of doing exactly what is right and standing up for what is right. Lord, help us to learn lessons from this, help us to realize how brave and courageous Jesus is, and how clear his mission is to die for the nation. Not as Caiaphas thought, but according to your plan, that salvation could be brought to not only the Jews, but also to us, even in this room of origin. Thank you, Lord, for this this passage, which affects our our life, our life in the 21st century, and which will affect our life for all eternity. Because Jesus didn't stay away from Jerusalem; he moved toward Jerusalem as the Passover season came. So, Lord, help us to realize that we need to be brave and do what is right as well. Follow Jesus' example. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.